0: Welcome to Media Roots Radio. How's everybody doing out there? Even though I'm doing this intro by myself, we actually have a three-person podcast today. Abby will be joining us. And we have a special guest who we've been planning to bring on Media Roots for quite a long time. And we felt like now is a good time to do that. Her name is Maxi some of our listeners out there may have already heard of her and her content she's a postdoc from toronto she has a phd in political ecology she runs the youtube channel mexi and co-hosts the vegan vanguard podcast on both of these platforms she makes content mostly geared towards human and animal liberation in sort of a universal sense she Reflects on things and has discussions that feel more universal and less focused on American politics or electoral politics. And I appreciate her broader and sort of more universal view on this and sort of her more humanistic approach, if you will, to the content that she puts out. So we decided to bring Mexi on Media Roots Radio to just go over a whole wide range of topics. But right before we were about to record the podcast, I learned about the news of Robert Aaron Long, who shot up two spas in Atlanta, killing eight people. So we start the podcast by discussing that. There's breaking news this morning. Well, actually, it happened last night. So we're recording this podcast on March 17th, um, in case anyone's wondering, sometimes we release these a couple of days later, so just need to clarify when we recorded this. The news was a young man uh, named Robert Aaron Long, a 21-year-old man from Georgia, went on an Asian massage parlor shooting rampage. And he hit up three different Asian massage spa places in Georgia, not just one target or location and it very much appears <laughs> that this is some kind of asian hate crime asian american resentment hate crime whatever you want to call it of course glenn greenwald is already saying that there's no connection between this you know he he's trying to downplay it well i mean it seems rather obvious to me that something was going to culminate into something like this and the only reason i'm bringing this up with you mexi is because i mean canada doesn't have as many of these incidents uh, in terms of like mass shootings or hate crimes to this level. But there was a pretty major mass shooting incident that happened when around the same time when Trump first got in office, which was the Quebec City mosque shooting. Like, what was your reaction to this? I mean, I'm assuming you probably heard about this. Do you feel that there is a, a clear linkage between racism or xenophobia and Quebec City mosque shooting and what we've seen with this shooting last night
1: yeah so i didn't actually hear about this i've been working so much i haven't even looked at the news um that's horrible horrible and horrifying um but yeah i mean definitely we don't have as many mass shootings but we definitely do still have um you know a lot of uh you know hate attacks um especially lately you know, during the COVID pandemic, um, we have also seen a big spike in, um, you know, anti-Asian attacks and just racism in general. So you have, yeah. So I don't think that we're immune from it either. Um, maybe, you know, people aren't necessarily getting shot, but they are getting definitely, um, you know, attacked, you know, uh, leered at, you know, um, you know, people, um, you know, engaging in, you know, verbal attacks and racial slurs and things like that. Um, a lot of Asian kids afraid to go to school because they'll be bullied and things like that. So, yeah, we're definitely not immune f- uh, from it. And the thing about Canada is that we are so unbelievably inundated with U.S. media and so completely influenced by what's going on in the U.S. that if it's happening in the U.S., you can probably bet it's happening here, too. Um at least in this uh, at this point in time, um, maybe not as extreme, but I can't. I'm not even sure um, if I could say that. Really, um, the thing is, like Canada is such a. It's a huge country, but we have such a small population. Like our population is smaller than the the population of California. Um, so oh, wow, okay. Most of the country is like forest or right, right. Um, like most of most Canadians live within you know, it, like basically just along the U.S. Uh, Canada border um, mm-hmm. and yeah there's a lot of I guess open space I mean I guess a lot of it is um, I guess more difficult to inhabit I suppose um, mm-hmm. but yeah I mean we're we're just kind of like US light you know <laughs> like uh, whatever happens there just like bleeds over here and like I yeah I just can't really stress enough to you that like our media is just us media so whatever kind of crap that people are being fed in the US they're also being fed it here um i think there is this kind of level of um oh well you know I, we're better than the US you know like so people will look at that media and just kind of take it as this um confirmation that you know canada's so much better um and we'll kind of just like pat ourselves on the back and pretend like it's not happening here too, you know, um, or like the focus will just be so much on how bad things are in the US that like there won't be any focus of on what's actually going on here, um, even though a lot of the same things are happening. But right. most people don't right. even really know about it because it's all just overshadowed by what's happening in the US. <laughs> So
2: I mean, yeah, it must be crazy to live in the shadow of like the world's dominant military empire, yeah. <laughs> <It's> like <laughs> committing like genocide and like backing just like, insane stuff around the world of like, yeah, it, it is very surreal. And I'm sure that has very bizarre impacts that we're going to get into. But I, let's get a little bit more into the media sphere. Because um, when you say that, you know, it's pretty much US media, what do you mean by that?
1: I mean, like you know, we get all the U.S. stations. You know, like we get CNN, okay. we get Fox, we get like, really, yeah. Just like
2: on your typical like Canadian package, Canadian you get all cable, of these get, ba- bizarre. How big all is all
0: CBC? That. There is that like, <laughs> is it as big as the BBC is in the UK in terms of their influence and reach, or is it smaller? Would you say? Uh,
1: you know, yeah, it has influence and reach. Um, uh, I'm not sure if it's as big as the BBC. Um, But it definitely has, you know, influence and reach within Canada. Like there are a few Canadian stations that, you know, have reach and things like that, but... Yeah, for the most part, um, yeah, Canadians are watching CNN, Canadians are watching Fox, Canadians are watching... That's
2: crazy! (laughs) It's, like, so U.S.-centric and and so insular.
1: Yeah, you know. yeah. It's so funny because, yeah, when Trump was elected, I remember, like, I mean, for, like, four years going to, like, you know, family dinners and things like that, all anybody wanted to talk about was, like, Trump and, like, everyone knows exactly what's (laughs) going on in, like, the U.S., like, you know, their cabinet, like, everyone knows all the the ins and outs, um, you know, all of the the legal stuff that's going on. Everyone knows all about it. Nobody knows what's going on in Canada. Or if they do, like, it just doesn't matter because it's not very exciting. So nobody wants to talk about it. Nobody really digs into it. Nobody knows, like, shit all about what's going on in Canada. Um, and then even, like, the CBC. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, even, like, the CBC, like, a lot of the stuff um, they will cover is just kind of, like, you know, similar You know, it's like global news as well. Right. So I don't know. It's, um, it's definitely interesting, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's people in Canada who will like wear MAGA hats, um, or they'll, they'll change it and have it be like, make Canada great again. Um, Yeah, we like we had um, in Toronto, actually, every Saturday recently, we've had, um, you know, anti-mask protests. And for the longest time, they were dominated by like QAnon people. Um, Jesus Christ. The thing, the difference is, I guess, that like, they don't receive any media attention here in Canada. Like, Mm -hmm people basically just ignore them. So Mm. they just go out all the time and it's not really covered. Um, But if you watch like their own videos about it, then you see like it's, it's madness. um, And it's a lot of QAnon stuff. So (laughs) yeah, yeah, that's Canada. But yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty wild um, that I think it really works to, you know the benefit of the Canadian capitalist class, obviously, um, to have sure. everyone just so transfixed on what's going on in Canada that even Canadians don't know what's going on in Canada, and they certainly have no idea, you know, how we're participating in American empire abroad either. Like no clue. So you meant that's
0: fascinating. Yeah. You meant transfixed on the United States, like the oh, sorry, is, yeah, 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 is sorry. turned outward, which is yeah. very interesting. I mean, just growing up in the United States, it's very bizarre. To realize this, I mean, on some level, I already knew this, but to hear you sort of reinforcing this is, it's kind of weird to think that in all these other countries, their governments can kind of distract their own populations by just being like, well, here, check out CNN, check out Fox, like Mm -hmm. check out everything that's Mm -hmm. going on in like the 24 hour media cycle that's, you know, being pumped out of the West as sort of this distractionary magnet for your concerns. I mean, Mm -hmm. it is sort of fascinating to think that all these people in the UK and Australia specifically are very plugged into our politics, like here in the mm-hmm. United States, way more than we're plugged into there. Like, I don't know, you, you used the term shit all <laughs> earlier. I don't know <laughs> shit all about Australian politics. <laughs> I couldn't tell you a goddamn thing, but somehow everybody in Australia knows everything about yeah. our politics and our, all our candidates. And I just find that sort of fascinating, but also depressing, I mean, on a different mm-hmm. level. Um, because that's how much influence you know, we have overall. It's not just like our empire, it's like our media uh,
2: yeah. You know, mm-hmm. Machine.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, yeah culturally, uh, economically, and yeah, just propagandistically. Yeah. The fact that these networks are blasting through the airwaves to all these countries. And I just, it's hard to wrap your mind around because they are so disgusting. Um, in the way that they only talk about like one issue all day, every day. And it's just like, Mm -hmm. you know, it's so hyperbolic and sensational and and so just not news whatsoever, you know. And and especially when you're looking at like the global analysis, there's just nothing at all unless like an American dies somewhere around the world or something like that. Um, So it's fascinating. It really is. And when it comes to CBC, my brother mentioned like – you know, is it similar to the BBC in terms of – you You mentioned that there is at least some sort of analysis about international politics. Um, but would you just say it's like a more milquetoast kind of version of U.S. corporate propaganda?
1: Yeah, basically. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it's certainly not radical. You know, it's like maybe – like liberal but a lot of this Mm -hmm. a lot of the stuff is just kind of like parroted you know like you know the anti-maduro stuff the the whatever you know like a lot of it is just it's not like the analysis is really fantastic (laughs)
2: so you would say that there has been like a current of of xenophobia anti-chinese rhetoric going on just a across the airwaves in Canada as well, like newspapers and radio and TV.
1: I'm not sure. I don't think it's so much in the media, um, Mm -hmm. but like on the ground. And the thing is that like a lot of people, you know, like, like in Canada, I guess it's probably the same in the US, you know, a lot of the more progressive people are really concentrated in the cities. And then um, outside of that, you know, you have a lot of people just being influenced by like internet culture, right? Sure. Um, so yeah. I don't even think it's necessarily the media that's, you know, super xenophobic um but people are getting these messages you know like there are people in Canada who are like oh yeah 5G is to blame or you know um sure. so people are really absorbing all of this stuff and obviously there's like a bunch of people who are into qAnon and and things like that so yeah i think people are just kind of exor- absorbing things that way and then going out yeah. and being racist and and attacking people so
0: there's this you know my pr- i i've been pretty obsessed Mexi, with um the wave of paranoia about China and sort of anti-China propaganda that's been amping up here in the United States. And my perception is that, and, and you can correct me on this, but because uh, this could just be my tunnel vision because I'm so obsessed. But my perception is that there's also sort of a cold war scare um, that's sort of under the surface in Canada, but it's but it's been happening. I don't know if it's been happening since the pandemic But it seems like it's it involves you know things like espionage, um, spy games between China and Canada. All these things that we're not really paying attention to here in in the states very much, but are happening in Canada to the point where uh, the Canadian spy chief came out and said that China poses a serious (laughs) a serious strategic Mm -hmm. threat to Canada, both through attempts to steal secrets and a campaign to intimidate the Chinese community. The head of Canada's spy agency said on Tuesday. Um, And there's also, uh, Canada also has a BSL biosafety level four microbiology lab uh, that has had some controversy because of Chinese nationals working there who have been actually kicked out of the country. Um, one of them in particular was uh, kicked out of the lab and I guess she had her citizenship revoked for sending Ebola to the Wuhan biosafety level four lab. Uh, there was also uh, what was the other incident? Uh, two um, Canadian citizens who lived in China, uh, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, um, were arrested in China for being suspected spies in seeming retaliation for uh, the CFO of Huawei, the, the um, you know the five G company Chinese company, the CFO Meng Wanzhou lived in Canada and was arrested in Canada because of a U.S. arrest warrant for apparently uh bank fraud and violating US sanctions against Iran specifically which is kind of an interesting charge. Now, I'm just wondering how much of this have you been paying attention to? Is it is it just something that I'm paying attention to cuz I'm obsessed or is this actually <laughs> been going on since the pandemic or like I mean, it's just sort of weird mm-hmm. to imagine that there's sort of this cold war spy game thing taking place in Canada. When you know when was the last time that even happened besides the Soviet versus the Soviet Union and and getting Canada wrapped up into all that crap you know with Russia and the US's Cold War with the Soviet Union it's it's just sort of weird so I don't know I just threw a bunch of stuff at you what what do you mm-hmm. have to say about that.
1: Yeah, well, um, I know about the Meng Wanzhou situation. Um, That's made the news a lot. Um, I know less about, you know, our involvement, um, you know, spying (laughs) on China necessarily. Um, But I do think that all of this has absolutely ramped up since the pandemic. And I think just, you know, the U.S. and Canada's pivot towards... China in general is just, um, uh, I mean, it's obviously, I think, you know, economic, right? Like even this whole 5G scare, I found that to be really interesting, um, just basically because China is so out-competing us in terms of, um, you know, creating 5G um, and like 5G infrastructure. So, um, I don't know, to me, it always just seems like... like it kind of just boils down to like economic imperialism. And like, I I feel like people kind of just see the writing on the wall that this is uh, a dying empire. It's an imploding empire. And that like, um, you know, all we really have, like, we've just kind of kept our, our economies afloat by like holding the rest of the world at gunpoint for so long. But um, that, you know, uh, that that's not going to be the case forever. So, um, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if that was happening. I wouldn't be surprised if, um, you know, we see this, the shift, um, and, you know, things like this escalating with China, but I, I also just see it as a completely losing battle. <laughs> um, like our economies are so intertwined, uh, at this point. And, uh, yeah, I just I just don't see any way for kind of like the US or Canada to kind of like, you know, like best China or whatever. I don't even know what they're doing. But yeah, I don't know much more about it. I'm sorry. I don't know. Uh, yeah, too much about our, our spying, <laughs> our spying operations over there.
0: No, it's fine. I mean, I, I it's uh, I, I'm glad you're I mean, it's what's weird, Maxi, is that Steve Bannon seems rather uh, obsessed with the Canadian Espionage and spy games with China uh, narrative because he made, or rather, produced an entire movie about Canada-China-China uh, relations called "Claws of the Red Dragon," which is very odd. And um, so there's some there's some kind of geostrategic value apparently in sort of using Canada as some kind of tool in this geopolitical chess game against China. I guess, and mm-hmm. that's as far as I really understand it, but. Yeah. I don't know. I just, I just think that that's interesting and and sort of uh, you know just sort of a side narrative to what's what's going on here in the states.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, it's not the first time that Canada has like spied internationally on behalf of the U.S. Um, sure, because you know our interests are so wrapped up with U.S. hegemony, right? Like our mm-hmm. political economic interests are so wrapped up with that, and um, I guess one of the great things about Um, you know, nobody knowing what's going on in Canada and things like that is that we are able to actively participate in like some of the worst things that the U S is doing, but we can do that in this kind of like quietly complicit way, Mm. um, and kind of save face and make it seem like, Oh, we're just the benevolent neighbors of the North. We're just, you know, um, you know, the, the wonderful peacekeepers that are impartial or things like that. But, um, Yeah, every step of the way, like, we're not impartial. And yeah, like, you know, we spied for the U.S. and Vietnam, um, obviously, with the Soviet Union. And um, yeah, I mean, the fact that The Iranian
0: hostage crisis, which... Yeah, yeah. One of the more famously depicted incidents.
1: Absolutely. Um, So, yeah, I mean, even the fact that we, yeah, arrested Meng uh, for the U.S. is like, I don't know. I'm just not surprised about any of this.
2: U.S. capitalism necessitates having China to basically just export pollution and labor like Mm -hmm. low wage labor in China, but at the same time trying to economically weaken China because they see how much China has risen as a global competitor, especially in the last 20 years. And it's like it's just an interesting contradiction because Mm -hmm. at the same time when you're trying to economically weaken China, but but you also have so much of U.S. capitalism tied into China. Mm -hmm you know, like as all this anti-China propaganda is coming out and and the Uyghur thing was, uh, you know, Uyghur human rights activists or whatever were calling attention to the NBA and saying that they should boycott China or whatever. And mm-hmm. some famous basketball player was just like, but all of these corporations do business in China. and yeah. that's just like kind of, <laughs> you know, like a weird contradiction? Why are you singling out the NBA when everyone literally um, – you know, has integral business ties with China. Yeah. So that was Charles that Barkley, by the way, thing. who said that. Oh, Okay. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, and then like Canada, or sorry, China also owns like so much of uh, the U.S.'s debt. Like, there's just there's no way that yeah. they can win. I I don't know. It's like Ch- China has obviously played the long game here, um, and. Yeah, like I said, like any country whose economy is just premised on continual austerity and imperialism to keep it going is going to implode, you know. Um, and yeah, at this point, like obviously they did set up China um, as, you know, uh, their manufacturing hub. And so you can't really like put put the rabbit back in. the. I don't know if that's the right uh, yeah. analysis, but you, no, you can't put it back. Like, you, like, what are you trying to do here? Um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I just feel like all of this is just kind of like, you know, fing- finger-wagging or something because ultimately at the end of, at the end of the day, like there's not much that you can really do without completely like s- screwing yourself over.
2: Yeah, no, it is it is really interesting especially what China's doing in Africa. Um, you know, while the US and World Bank and IMF and these kind of appendages appendages of U.S. capitalism and stuff has been engaged in debt trap diplomacy
1: mm-hmm. to
2: just subjugate these countries and keep them, you know, in eternal debt structures for so long. China has kind of gone in and, you know, obviously they're profiting and it's it's not altruistic that China's going in and like <laughs> building up, you know, mm-hmm. infrastructure and stuff like that. They have their own motivations for that, but it's it's definitely not the same as what the U.S. is doing. And even if it was more similar it's a huge threat, um, and I think that you know, with the U.S. tied up in so much in the Middle East for the last twenty years, it like it's now just really worried yeah. about China's influence in the world. Um, but but what's interesting also, just in terms of neoliberalism, like when you look at the two party system in the U.S., you know, Biden has adopted almost identical rhetoric about China from the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. You have his Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, talking about, you know, the strategy is uh, exactly the way that we want to approach this. Trump had a good policy um, talking about genocide in China, talking about human rights abuses, talking about all of this stuff. And so when you're looking at, like, anti-Asian hate crimes on the rise, you really can attribute that to both parties equally, Mm -hmm. you know, alongside the corporate media, of course. So how is... Justin Trudeau, because w- with the very few instances that our media talks about him, they kind of paint him as like a saintly Obama type figure <laughs> who's just, you know, like super woke prime minister. <laughs> but like, mm-hmm. what is I mean, I'm assuming he's just like a very generic neoliberal uh, similarly to Biden. But briefly talk about
0: and that. also and also makes briefly mm-hmm. comment on uh, him being ca- fidel castro's secret child
2: <laughs> i honestly am not ruling that out dude he looks identical to fucking castro and his mom was like with castro at the time it was okay anyway it's so
1: funny um yeah so yeah he just he definitely is a generic Lib. um he yeah he's he's everyone says he's super woke because um i guess he produced the first uh, cabinet where there was gender parity. So there was, you know, as many men as women or whatever, but again, everyone's just kind of like a generic neolib. Um, he does share similarities with Obama in that he has continued, you know, trying to push pipelines through indigenous lands, uh, violently. Um, (laughs) actually the, like the Kinder Morgan Trans Mountain pipeline, um, this has been you know, protested for years by indigenous nations. Um, And Trudeau ended up purchasing the project from Kinder Morgan for $4.5 billion in an effort to just go ahead and push it through. Um, So he's still struggling with that. uh, But, you know, he's definitely trying. Um, And then you might have heard as well in the news, um, there was controversy around the coastal gas link pipeline in B.C., um, and it leaked that, like, there was a raid on Unistoten camp, um, and, uh, RCMP members came in to, like, just force indigenous people away so that they could start constructing this pipeline. Um, and it actually leaked that the RCMP was preparing to use lethal overwatch, so basically just, like, snipe people, um, uh, from the Wet'suwet'en, uh, First wow. Nation, uh, who were trying to, wow. to block the coastal gasoline pipelines, so... Yeah, uh, definitely just uh, a neolib. And then, um, yeah, I mean, in terms of foreign policy, like uh, <laughs> he's been criticized, obviously, because um he's painted as this like feminist, you know, like our our feminist prime minister. Um, But then, you know, he's criticized because he's, you know, close with Saudi Arabia or whatever. Um, One of the first things that he did actually was to reaffirm signing a $15 billion deal to sell armored vehicles to Saudi Arabia, which um, was actually the largest arms exporting contract in Canadian history. And they were obviously used in Yemen. Um, Oh, we also trained soldiers to operate those vehicles and ran training programs for Saudi pilots in Alberta and Saskatchewan. So yeah, it's, um, it's just more of the same, you know, and like this stuff does make headlines, but I don't know. I think, I, I don't know what it is. Like Canadians are very, very passive. Like people will get upset, but their opposition will remain passive, you know, um, So it'll be like people will just complain about it. Um, But again, I guess maybe we're just overshadowed by so much of what's going on in the States that people are like, oh, well, at least we're not them, you know.
2: (laughs) So Canada has an arms industry as well.
1: Yeah, um, Canada is actually has a, I think it's the sixth largest arms dealer in the world, um, which pe- wow. people might not know that much about. And in terms of the Middle East, uh, by 2015, Canada was the second largest arms dealer in the Middle East. Um, we also have, you know, like, people don't really realize that there are also like Canadian mercenary firms um, who are operating mm. in Iraq and, and other places. Um So again, like all of this gets completely overshadowed, um, by the U S and most people think that our role globally is just to be peacekeepers. (laughs) Um, like funnily enough, I don't want to like throw my mom under the bus. I don't think she'll listen to this, but, um, (laughs) like we go to a lot of sports games in Toronto, like blue Jays, blue Jays games and Raptors games and whatever, Um, not so much at the Raptors games, but like usually at the Blue Jays games or at the Leafs games, just hockey, like they'll have, I'm sure they do this in the U.S. too, where they have this like moment to like honor the troops or whatever, and they'll bring out, I don't know, some general or whatever, and everyone has to stand and clap and like, whatever. Um, and I like stopped standing because I was like, I'm not, I'm not doing this anymore. Um, and, um, you know, she... didn't get that mad that she was clearly like, I don't think this is right, that you're not standing, you know, like our troops are not like uh, the American troops. Like, you know, we're there for peacekeeping. (laughs) And that's just like a really common refrain. Like people just think that that's what we're all about. We're the peacekeepers. And um, so when you're supporting our troops, you're supporting peacekeeping. You're not supporting, I don't know, whatever is going on with the States. But I mean, first of all, No, um, and, you know, what our peacekeepers have done globally has been absolutely atrocious um like just super appalling stuff and then two, it's like well what does peacekeeping mean within the context of you know imperialist aggression that shouldn't be happening it just basically means Very orwellian term (laughs) yeah it just basically means like okay we're just facilitating that aggression like we we have always been completely partial um facilitating um empire like always setting on the side of colonial powers or imperial powers um and what does that mean just making sure that like the people on the other side of that are not getting too uppity you know people are remaining peaceful while this stuff is happening um so it's just kind of wild but um yeah i mean i don't know we could get into it a little bit but yeah
2: it is i mean the indoctrination runs deep and that does kind of make sense that yeah uh, peacekeeping would appear to be like synonymous with just like main or something like, oh, mm-hmm. we're not, we're not the aggressors. We're just there. I, I don't know. It's like kind of ambiguous. It's like, what the hell yeah. does that
0: really mean? I just wanted to mention, Mexi. Have you ever heard uh, the only instance I can think of, where like a Canadian government official, like actually, was very vocal against the U. The U.S. <laughs> behavior was. Uh, have you heard of a guy named John Watkins, the diplomat? Mm-hmm. You, you've heard of him before?
1: Uh, not really.
0: Okay, well, apparently he was a he was a a diplomat to the Soviet Union and um, the CIA intercepted his flight on the way back to Canada and locked him in a hotel room for over 24 hours and interrogated him until he died of a supposed heart attack. And it's just a very bizarre international incident that's been basically buried um, where the CIA essentially uh, basically interrogated a Canadian diplomat to death. Oh, and wow. the Canadian government and the U.S. government, you know, obviously buried this. But um, you know, you have these rare instances sometimes where someone will stand up to sort oh, of yeah. this U.S. imperialist paradigm, and it, you know, sadly, it looks like this guy paid for it. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: so, yeah, I didn't even know about that. So that was definitely very. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um,
2: I guess you know when I when I think of Canadian politics. Um, the fact that there is like a multi-party system and the fact that there is somewhat of a safety net does kind of give the appearance that it is a better version of the U.S. I mean, the U.S. is like this bastardized version of democracy. And of course, being the the world's global hegemon, like it's so deteriorated and fake, right? But Canada's kind of like has a veneer of respectability because at least... There isn't just two corporate-owned parties. At least, you know that there is universal health care. There is monthly stimulus, right? I mean, paint a picture of how Canada is dealing with the pandemic, both health-wise, like health safety-wise, and like the safety net for citizens. Because the only frame of reference I have is that we're in a failed state. Not only the worst COVID rates in the world, 500,000 plus dead. No help from the government at all. You know, you very well know, like, they've been arguing about giving us a one-time stimulus check for, like, the last eight months. Eight million more people plunged into poverty. I'm in the epicenter of homelessness in the U.S. It's absolutely devastating, the amount of tent cities erected around me. It's just, it's a nightmare, Maxie. Um, Mm -hmm. So talk briefly about, like, what, what exactly is going on over there? And then also, do you, you know, do you think that having... The few things that you do have that differentiate Canada from the U.S., like, is helpful for activism to make a difference there, I guess.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, Well, I mean, yeah, compared to the U.S., we're definitely doing better. (laughs) Um yeah I mean it's kind of, I mean it's not funny it's really sad but you know you guys are kind of fighting over like this one time payment of $2000 and at least um you know Canadians got $2000 per month um for I think 7 months and then there was a new Jesus
0: Christ. Benefit-
1: a new benefit program came into effect, which I think is the same. I I think, I think you still get $2,000 per month. I think they've made it more difficult to access though now, like with means testing and things like that. Um, So that was a lot better, obviously. Um, But there were a lot of problems with it. Like they, They didn't really require any proof up front, like if you needed it, it was like this emergency benefit. So you just applied and you were just like sent the money, no questions asked. But like later they, they went through and processed everything. And then um, it was kind of gross, because um, some people really got screwed over because... Um, apparently the, the benefit was only for if you lost your job due to COVID. So for people who had lost their jobs before COVID and like still needed the money, um, they weren't eligible or like you had to have made like $5,000 the year before. So a lot of people weren't eligible. Um, and, uh, you know, there was a really interesting discussion because people who are on disability, um, make or get far less than that per month. So you'd like, and if you're on disability, uh, for various reasons, probably wouldn't, um, wouldn't qualify for this benefit. So you're over there trying to live on your like $1,200 per month still while other people are getting $2,000 per month. So yeah, it was, you know, it's, it was good. Obviously like I know, I know a bunch of people who got the benefit and obviously it really helped them. Um, and they could kind of just You know, rest and um, so it wasn't just a blanket
2: stimulus. Yeah, no, that is important because I think, I mean, at least I was under the perception that everyone was just getting monthly checks, but it it, you did have to prove that you actually lost your job after COVID.
1: Yes. Um, and Mm. then I know at least one activist in Toronto, um, got like royally fucked by it because, um, I guess they were, they became unemployed before COVID hit. Um, but they were really desperate. I don't know, maybe like they obviously needed the money, so they just applied for it. Um, but now, um, And I, I, I don't know, I don't fully know the case, but it was, they were pretty much like wrongfully accused of Serb fraud. Um, and so now they had to pay all of it back, um, plus I think a bit more or something. So they have to like organize this GoFundMe. It's just really cruel and ridiculous that, you know, obviously, um, the most marginalized are being forced to pay, like, you know, if, if people are unemployed, they need this, this money more than anyone else. Like they're still trying to go through a pandemic, Mm -hmm. um, So yeah, like the means testing on it was kind of gross, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I guess it was fairly easy for people to get, um, if you did lose your job, um, due to COVID, um, and then they, they did come come up with a a few more kind of benefits for like students and things like that. So obviously that was a lot better. Um, Obviously the fact that we have universal healthcare is a lot better um, because if people are sick, they can get treatment. Um, But yeah, in terms of Ontario, I mean, like, if you look at the, like the waves, like the first wave, we, we did pretty well at containing, but the second wave has just been absolutely ridiculous. Um, And here in Ontario, it was basically like, we have a conservative government. This guy, Doug Ford, you probably heard of um, Rob Ford. (laughs) He was the Toronto mayor. Yeah. (laughs) The
2: crack smoking (laughs) mayor.
1: Yeah. So his brother got elected after Donald Trump, because I don't know, people were all into like MAGA stuff. And he was, I don't know, that kind of a figure. Um, But yeah, so we did a pretty good job containing the first wave. But then we all knew that like once we just like opened everything up again in September, opened the schools up again, whatever it was going to skyrocket. And it did. And he just didn't really want to do anything about it. And he waited until it was just, you know, we were almost um, almost at the point of just overloading our hospitals and things like that. And then we've been in lockdown since like December. Um, And oh, so you're still in lockdown. Yeah. Like he just like, so they'll lift the lockdown for different places in Ontario. But in Toronto, we're we're not, we're technically in like a gray zone right now. Um, so mm-hmm. we still have stay-at-home orders, but things are kind of opening up. But it's been really inconsistent. Like it was one of those things where for a long time, the lockdown was like, okay, well, you can't go to small businesses, but you can go to a big box store or a mall or something like that, right? Um, and like through all of this, he refused to legislate paid sick days, um, did not give any support for renters, um, you know, no protection for frontline workers. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, the way that it's been handled has been pretty terrible, even though people are potentially getting this 2000 per month from the federal government. Mm -hmm. Um, and like in, in Toronto, like BIPOC people account for nearly 80% of the COVID cases. So, um, you know, it's obviously really like racialized as well. Um, and then, yeah, we also have, you know, we have a lot of social movements going on in the city right now trying to protect people from being evicted, but yeah, people are being evicted and then there are a lot of homeless encampments in the city that the police are trying to crack down on and, you know, empty. And it's like, honestly, where are people supposed to go? Like we're in the middle of a fucking pandemic. Um, so yeah, I mean it's not it's not fantastic, um, but yeah, I mean that's that, that's always the thing though, that, and this this also again plays to the interests of the Canadian capitalist class is that like we don't have to be great like we can still be fairly shit as long as we're slightly better than the u.s because then (laughs) because then everyone could just be like oh i'm so grateful to be here i'm so grateful that we have our universal (laughs) healthcare i'm so grateful
2: this failed state next door
0: you (laughs) got a failed state across the border (laughs) that's probably how we look at Mexico like I mean it's kind of almost like a pecking order it's like you guys have that mentality about us and then we have that mentality about Mexico it's just so fucked up
1: well because like canadian identity is so flimsy and fragile right like from the starting our whole identity was just kind of based around like well how are we distinguishing ourselves from the americans of And course. so like we obviously were just like oh well okay we're the polite ones they're the rude ones like we're yeah. you know we're the civilized mm-hmm. ones we're the progressive ones they're the like unhinged ones and so like <laughs> our whole identity is just based around like oh well like we're so much more advanced than the states you know and mm-hmm. that's all it is is and that's all it needs to be you know so that's fascinating yeah
0: it makes sense psychologically i mean and if you look at it historically it's like you know we all came i mean canada and the united states came from the colonialization of you know this continent essentially around the same time vaguely so it's just it is funny how that sort of mentality evolved um you know, we're all empire babies on some level, but it's, I mean, it's obvious that the United States is, you know, leading the charge and is, is, the, is the, uh, mm-hmm. the cannon fodder for most of this. Um, but, you know, I, I know we've been talking an awful lot about Canada, but the last thing I wanted to bring up about Canada, because, uh, you know, this guy in particular has been getting a lot of attention, a lot of negative press, but also some positive press from sort of the more, you know, uh, younger conservative crowd. And his name is Jordan Peterson. Mm. Um, He was a college professor who basically made a name for himself. And this is seemingly how he got notoriety or attention by refusing to comply or taking some quote-unquote stand against a law in Canada that was meant to prevent discrimination against trans-identifying people. Now, what was your reaction to this, seeing Jordan Peterson rise in notoriety and fame for apparently resisting this law? And the law itself, did he mischaracterize it? Because, you know, when he talks, when he originally talked about it, I was like, that does sound like you know, a potentially stifling law. But then the more I looked into it, it seemed like he had been distorting and sort of taking like a a tokenistic political stand against something that wasn't really accurate in the way he was describing it. So Mm -hmm. I don't know, break that down for us and how you saw that from your side, because here it was a little bit like, I don't know what this law means, you know, maybe Canada has worse laws in that regard than we have. Like I I would just, I didn't Mm -hmm. know how to feel about it first. So what was your reaction to that?
1: I was supremely frustrated um, throughout that entire period and watching this. uh, I just find him so, (laughs) I I just, I just can't, (laughs) I just honestly can't. Um, But yeah, I was very frustrated through all of that because yeah, as you're saying, like, He really painted it as this thing that people were getting, you know, upset about. Like, I remember even my ex-partner was like, oh, well, I don't know, maybe he has a point or maybe you should listen to this or whatever, because he had like legal experts coming on and whatever. Um, But no, it's really just the Bill C-16 was supposed to prevent violence and discrimination against people on the basis of their gender identity or gender expression, um, but only within the sphere of federal jurisdiction. So that basically means that it just prohibits people. Um, like if you're a federally regulated employer or service provider, so like a federal department, a crown corporation, um, or a federally regulated company, like a, like banks or trucking companies or broadcasters or things like that. It just meant that you couldn't like discriminate or there couldn't be like violence or discrimination, um, on trans individuals like at their workplaces basically. Um, and yeah, so he basically took this as like, Oh, this is going to compel people to use gender neutral pronouns in private speech which the Canadian Bar Association was like, no, that's not what this is about, um, and it was obviously <laughs> super political for him because he actually said that you know people who want people who want um, the use of gender neutral program pronouns um, or just are people who have a political ideology and he went on and on about the, the ideology of cultural Marxism oh, yeah. <laughs> or whatever. Which he conflates
0: um, with post-modernism which, which shows yeah. that he clearly doesn't, it, what's fascinating is he clearly fundamentally doesn't understand what Marxism or post-modernism is on like a fundamental right. level. For a college professor it's actually kind of egregious because he presents, right. he's very articulate and he seems smart but for someone to be so ignorant on like two fundamentally, like these are widely taught belief systems in colleges, postmodernism mm-hmm. and Marxism. So it's yeah. like pure ignorance. I mean, that's that's what I get from him. But sorry to interrupt you.
1: No, absolutely. I mean, but he's a psychologist. This is the thing. Yeah. Like, why are we listening to a psychologist about postmodernist theory or political science? Like, what does he have to offer us in this, this regard? Obviously nothing, because- This is ridiculous. Yeah, the whole cultural Marxism thing was just, yeah, like you said, right? It's just that that's a complete misunderstanding of both Marxism and postmodernism. And the fact that he thinks that people who just want to be referred to as their proper pronouns have some kind of, you know, larger, fantastical political ideology that they just want to, you know, impose on people. He just basically didn't want to call people the, the, the pronouns that they wanted to be used and then he was making a big deal about the law um i don't know i mean if it was like uh, like it, it was smart of him to do because it you know catapulted him to fame and he sure. was making a ridiculous amount of money on his patreon um i can't remember how much it was but it was oh, honestly it was, a it was ton. like yeah it was like thousands like like 30,000 it
2: was like $30,000 a month or he
1: yeah, was one yeah. of the first people
0: month. did one of those performative quitting his job and he needs Mm -hmm. money like fundraiser kind of thing over a political stand i mean yeah and it was very effective i mean he basically made his entire career out of that i mean he had a Mm -hmm. kind of a political presence before but nobody knew who he was um no but unfortunately guys i have to run um but hopefully we can do this again all right okay Okay, bye
1: robbie thanks Thanks, you Bye. bye good talking to you yeah you too
0: um
2: but it's it's really interesting that you're talking about you know he's a psychologist. Mm -hmm. Jordan Peterson's a psychologist. Why are we listening to him about trans rights?
1: Yeah. (laughs) And
2: it's kind of the same thing as like the Sam Harris thing. Like he is going out there, positing himself as some sort of expert on foreign policy and Islam Mm -hmm. when he's a essentially a neuroscientist. Mm -hmm. And it's like, wait a minute. Why, you know, why are you some sort of expert in uh, like, Muslims,
1: You know what I mean? Yeah. No, it's ridiculous. And then it's really funny because Jordan Peterson, um, you know, he's taking this big stand, uh, you know, for free speech and things like that. Um, But then he was passing around these things. Like he was trying to get rid of entire departments and universities or whatever. Like he had this list of professors that were like dangerous professors or whatever. Um, And it's just like, okay, you don't give a shit about free speech, obviously, you know. That's Um, fascinating. Fascinating. So, so
2: projecting the whole cancel culture notion, like doing it himself. I mean, yeah, you know, I mean, this McCarthyite, like witch hunt to be like, we need to now shut down. Like, it's not good enough that I'm now making $30,000 grifting Mm -hmm. with the alt-right community in the U.S. primarily about anti-trans bigotry. But now I have to like actually go and shut down people talking about Mm -hmm. these issues. That's pretty crazy. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty crazy. I remember seeing, I don't know if you saw this, the debate, quote unquote debate, I wouldn't really even call it a debate because Slavo Zizek like pretty much agreed with most of what Jordan Peterson was saying. Yeah. But one thing that was really funny is that um, Jordan Peterson, like all he had done was read the Communist Manifesto and he, you know, he like claims that he's this expert on whatever cultural Marxism really means. I guess it just means like the mainstreaming of like feminism and gay rights and stuff yeah, that's and like, it, that's it. like because Slavo <laughs> Zizek like pointed at him and he was like who are the Marxists that you were talking about controlling society and he mm-hmm. literally could not name one person yeah that was a Marxist a self-proclaimed Marxist self-identified Marxist that actually had power mm-hmm. and I think that really says it all yeah. um, because it's such a weird Scaremongering, fearmongering, fear mongering hyperbolic thing but then really when it comes down to the nuts and bolts he couldn't actually articulate like an anyone or anything and that's like i think a lot of conservatives in the u.s and i don't know how it is um I guess it's all the same in Canada and the U.S. Instead of like, how is it in Canada? It's like, (laughs) it's all the same. (laughs) But like, but like conservatives here just think that like Marxists control everything. And it's like, dude, there literally is no left wing power structure in the U.S. That's the point. Mm -hmm. It's been eroded and purposefully like deconstructed for the last hundred years. Mm
1: -hmm. You know? Yeah. No, it's, it's the exact same. And like, you'd be surprised how many, you know, big conservative influencers come out of Canada right like um mm-hmm. Stephen Molyneux um oh
2: my god oh my god that's crazy I yeah. forgot that he was Canadian
1: yeah Lauren Southern uh faith Goldie um Jordan Peterson <laughs> there's just there's oh, just wow. like a ton yeah
2: what's so. up with Stefan Molyneux I know that he got he pretty much got like band everywhere right
1: yeah i'm not i don't keep up with yeah. what's going on yeah, you're
2: not, not on the <laughs> not know. on the tip
1: yeah <laughs>
2: <laughs> um let's i know that you 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 know a lot more than what we touched upon about how canada is the junior collaborator with the u.s empire and i know that we've been yeah. harping a lot about canada but i i do think it is important to go more in depth about this because mm you briefly touched upon the peacekeeping forces thing and of course Canada's role in like the Iraq war and Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um you know talk more about that like what what is sure. going on what is the participation in the war on terror what else have you uncovered and Yeah. you know how does it really uh, manifest?
1: Yeah. Well I would just want to start by saying that you know Canada as a colonizing force itself really frames how we act in the world and I think that's the same for the US like we are occupying forces here you know that that just never left like like canada is part of the british empire that just never left um and so like the violence of colonialism and you know the genocidal policies that we've enacted towards indigenous people and that we still do um are very much the same way that we engage with people elsewhere Um, and like indigenous scholars are pointed out that you know, wherever we go around the world, the quote unquote enemy territory is called Indian co- country. And that like, that's not, you know, um, that's not a coincidence. Um, and then there's a. a, a I want to shout out Tyler Shipley, who's one of my friends and he wrote this really great book called Canada in the world. Um, and he really makes this link clear about like the way that we've treated indigenous people and the links between that and our imperialism, especially since, you know, like Canada as a settler capitalist project, um, you know, eventually the contradictions of capitalism mean that you will need to expand into other markets. And so we just kind of took our colonial attitude into um, other places in the world to try to further our capitalist system, basically. Um, but there's a lot of really interesting connections, um, like indigenous people were actually forced to mine the uranium that went into the bombs that devastated Japan. In 1945, it was actually mined on Dene territory near Great Bear Lake, Um, and most of the indigenous workers actually died of cancer because Canada just never told them the danger associated with mining that uranium. So there's like so many connections between, again, you know, like our colonial, horrible genocidal policies towards indigenous people and then what we're doing abroad. Um, but yeah, it's really interesting, you know, digging into like what we were doing as peacekeepers, um, because it's just such a farce. Um, and it's just so funny that this is such a foundational myth of like Canada and our Canadian forces. Um, but yeah, I think one of the, the first, um, uh, you know, uh, places that we were, Supposed to be these great peacekeepers was with the Suez Crisis with Lester B. Pearson, who was a former prime minister, Um, and he actually won the Nobel Prize for organizing the UN emergency force to deal with that. Um, But Canada, in in that whole you know debacle, was uh, firmly on the side of Israel, Um, and we are very very uh, supportive and connected with Israel as well. Actually, Lester B. Pearson played a major role in actually drafting the UN partition plan for. Palestine in 1947. Um, and, and one of our Supreme Court justices also played a huge role in drafting that partition plan. Um, and wow. then, yeah. And then once that, w- that was approved, obviously that gave Zionist justification for taking military action. Um, so yeah, they're really like renowned there. Um, and a lot of Canadians went to Palestine to fight with the Zionists and things like that. There's actually a park called Canada Park. Um, on the site of a bulldozed uh, Palestinian village that Canada contributed 15 million to building. Um, But anyway, so they were clearly not impartial in that in that at all. And really what Lester Pearson wanted to do was just to kind of repair relations between uh, the British and uh, America because They wanted like it. We would serve their interest to have those um, allies working together again. So he kind of just like played both sides and then um, proposed replacing the occupying armies of Britain and France with the UN peacekeeping force. Um, But Nasser ended up like kicking out the Canadian contingent of the the UN force because he said that they were serving a a force of neo imperialism. Um, So that was supposed to be the the thing that. I don't know, catalyzed us into like this era of peacekeeping. Um, but basically everywhere that we have been quote unquote peacekeepers, first of all, our troops have been, um, you know, beating people, um, raping people, like gang rapes, murder, torturing people. Um, one of the most, I guess, scandalous affairs was the Somalia affair. Um, and we had basically... Um, sent a team of soldiers to Somalia as part of a UN quote unquote peacekeeping mission. Um, But uh, yeah, you know, peacekeepers, obviously, like I said, they were doing all this horrible shit to people. Um, The people around them, like the Somalians were actually starving. And then like the Canadians were in these like really well-stocked bases. Um, And, you know, they were treating everyone like such shit. um, So, They were saying that, like, Somalis were, um, trespassing. And so, uh, like, one of the lieutenants, um, basically, like, set up this, this trap, like, he wanted to entrap people. So he, he used food and water as bait, which just shows you that, like, they knew that, you know, the civilians were not dangerous. They were just starving, um, and so when they, and like two, two people inevitably came and, you know, thought that it was something that was like, oh, this is, this is, I don't know, some kind of a, a an aid thing. Um, so they tried to eat the food and uh, they shot them and um, killed one of them. Um, and the most egregious thing was that they, um, they found a 16 year old Shadane Arone um, like hiding in a, in a portable toilet in an abandoned base. And they tortured him, beat him. Um, they sodomized him with a broomstick and then took a whole bunch of photos. Um, and yeah, the photos are, I, you know, I'd look them up and they were absolutely disgusting. Um, but yeah, they, like all of, all of this is, you know, really characteristic of what they've done. Um, elsewhere in the world, like in Korea, they as well, um, murdered people, raped people, um, the Congo. Um, I don't, am not sure if they murdered anyone there, but they, they always really are, you know, sexually abusive. And of course, like they're, they have a completely colonial mindset. Like they treat everyone where they're going as, you know, savages or beneath them or whatever, um, But with the Shaday Narone situation, you know, they really tried to write it off as, oh, these are just these were just two really bad apples. But actually, as many as 80 people came and went from that area and didn't do anything or actively contributed or took photos or whatever. So, yeah, I think that was like probably the most publicized and, you know, horrifying thing that peacekeepers were doing. But um but yeah, basically everywhere that they were quote unquote peacekeepers, they were doing stuff like that, but they were also just facilitating US imperialism, like, um, in Korea, in the Korean war, for example, um, they were, you know, just facilitating, um, you know, a peacekeeping mission that was just like scorched earth policy, basically. Yeah. That <laughs> was just ridiculous. Um, you know, in uh, in the Congo with Patrice Lumumba, they went in as, quote unquote, peacekeepers and Lumumba ordered that, you know, all the white peacekeepers leave because it was clear that they were there on like a regime change mission. Um, but Canada ignored the request and called it reverse racism. Um, but, you know, clearly sided with Mobutu, which who was a dictator who then took over. Um so yeah, they really just supported like every step of the way, you know, they, they in Chile, they supported Pinochet over Allende. Um, they supported the Guatemalan coup and Um, I don't think people really know this, but Canada is home to the vast majority of the world's mining companies. And so, um, we like quietly support all of this because we have mining interests in so many different countries. Um, so like in Guatemala, actually, um, Justin Trudeau's dad, Pierre Trudeau, who was another prime minister. You
2: mean, you mean Castro? (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it is really funny how how much Justin Trudeau's actual father does not look like him at all. It's like, wait a minute, dude. Like, that's not your dad. Yeah, (laughs) that's so funny. So when you say mining companies, like, they're housed there or are there actual, like, mining operations going on in Canada? Then they also, you know, support U.S. hegemony and, and these kind of imperialist operations to extract resources and then bring the resources to, like, harvest them and harness them in Canada.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So our our um, our companies are operating mines um, all over the world. Um, right. And so what yeah. com-
2: do you do? You, what kind of companies?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, there's so many different companies. Mm-hmm. I think one of the most po- not popular, but uh, one that people have probably heard of is Barrick Gold. Mm-hmm. Um who, which has done like absolutely egregious, egregious things globally. Um, in Guatemala, it was International Nickel or Inco. Um, and the Pierre Trudeau government was really involved with that. And um, so they partnered with the, the military coup government, which just killed a whole bunch of people. Um, Guatemalans who were condemning the Canadian mine uh, were assassinated. Um, yeah, <laughs> they just, you know, partner with the, the worst, um, the worst people. Um,
2: yeah. So you're saying that there were peacekeeping forces before this rebrand, like officially was in effect. Like they always kind of pretended like they were just like the benign assisters or something to th- these larger military operations. Or was there like a rebrand under Lester, um, that made you know that kind of shifted the public consciousness
1: about canadian military forces um yeah uh i'm not sure like to what extent i mean i mm-hmm. guess that we probably were doing peacekeeping before that but i think that um yeah, in terms of like kind of the the mythology around Canada as a peacekeeper kind of started around then. And then we kind of had this era of quote unquote peacekeeping, which went into like the 90s, basically. And then in the 90s, we had budget cuts that affected the military. And then conservatives called that the, the quote unquote decade of darkness because we were... apparently like minimizing our role um with our military but then um as soon as the war on terror started um we started to increase our military budget like it went from 12 billion in the 90s to like 20 billion in the late 2010s and um we started to engage more actively in like regime change operations and like imperialist aggression and less on the peacekeeping thing. But like I said, with, you know, my mom is the example. Most people still think that that's what we do is just peacekeeping. Like they don't realize mm-hmm. like what we're doing now. Um, but yeah, a lot of this does have to do with, um, like mining interests. Um, and a lot of egregious stuff happens around. And and it happens in Canada too. Like a lot of indigenous activists um, talk about the issue with um, man camps, uh, which is basically like, you know, camps of men who are working in mines and things like that. And it contributes a lot of violence against women. Um, there's a whole... There, there was a whole inquiry, inquiry in Canada around all of the murdered and missing indigenous women and girls. Um, that's really been like an epidemic and that usually happens around these man camps. And then similarly, globally, like Barrick Gold has had, if you just do like a cursory <laughs> cursory search yeah. of Barrick Gold, you'll see like all the the rapes and murders and things that they've had to... I don't know, cover up or like pay people out for, but they paid like the women who, sir, like the some of the survivors I read were got like maybe six thousand dollars each. <laughs> um,
2: oh my god,
1: as compensation. So, oh
2: my yeah. god, that's horrible. <laughs> I know that's horrible. Um, it, I mean, it seems like, yeah, like when you're talking about the war on terror, kind of escalated the Canadian intervention in these military operations and stuff was it primarily Mm -hmm. through like nato and u.n efforts that they that they added troops to these operations and stuff
1: um yeah i guess so um because well okay so and like like, how
2: many and like how many countries are we talking about here that that canada is involved in do you know
1: well i mean um I don't know, I, I guess, like, the number, but basically, yeah. like, everywhere that the U.S. has been yeah. involved, like, we've been involved in support, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, like, um, in Afghanistan, um, our troops, I don't think we were peacekeeping then. Oh, we just had troops there that were, well, maybe we were, but we were primarily based in Kandahar, Um And there was a scandal there as well um, that uh, our soldiers shot into this like unarmed car and killed two children. Um, And apparently that kind of happened a lot. Like if cars drove near the Canadian convoys, they would just get shot. Um, They also carried out violent raids that killed civilians, including religious leaders. Um, So, you know, people there were chanting like death to Canada um, but wow, yeah, so I, I guess we weren't really like, we were apparently there to like, yeah, I guess we were peacekeepers because we were apparently there to just kind of stabilize this failed state, um, quote unquote failed state. Um, and then, you know, all of our companies really secured lucrative contracts, just like American ones did kind of like, um, Naomi Klein economic shock theory, mm-hmm. um, So yeah, we have a bunch of kind of companies like there's Lockheed Martin Canada, um, Canaccord Financial, all this other, all these other companies. um, And then as well, gold mines were awarded um, contracts there. So um, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then um, they they installed the puppet government, um, Hamid Karzai in Afghanistan, and he was actually structured into taking orders from Canadian military officials. There was a strategic advisory team, Afghanistan, or SAT-A, which was basically a a cluster of Canadian military officers who were part of that government apparatus, and they could actually draft um afghan legislation and so they deliberately weakened the parliament to give more power to the president in order to basically like establish the architecture for neoliberalism and um you know impose austerity and then open open things up for for an investment which um which is what happened (laughs) and then um yeah and then we also um uh oh oh well I'm not sure if this was in Afghanistan, um, but, you know, yeah, we, we also engaged in, like, torture as well and knowingly transferred prisoners to the Afghan National Police for torture. Um, so, yeah, that was Afghanistan. <laughs>
2: <laughs> was there any uproar in, in Canadian society when these scandals were happening similarly to, you know, like Abu Ghraib and yeah. Guantanamo Bay and stuff? Were people, like, really upset?
1: Yeah, like people weren't really behind the war. Um but like I said, I think that like the the opposition was mostly passive. Um mm-hmm. I mean there was kind of uh, definitely for Iraq there was a, a you know a lot of anti-war activism. Um but Canada Canada didn't actually officially pledge to uh, go to war with Iraq because the UN hadn't sanctioned it but it worked really closely with the US behind the scenes to facilitate it um, and they provided like a surge of Canadian troops to Afghanistan to make up for the fact that a lot of um, American troops were redeploying to Iraq um, and Canadian soldiers did participate on the ground um, like I said we had mercenary companies also involved on the ground. Um, and then we mostly helped in the quote unquote reconstruction, which was supposedly starting in 2003. So we offered police and, you know, combat engineers and things like that to assist. And then our RCMP trained um, 32,000 Iraqi police officers. Um, and then there were some pretty high profile Canadians who were actually involved in the planning for the war itself. So um yeah, like, our militaries are so intertwined, I guess, at this point. Yeah. Um, and I think the War on Terror especially was – Canada was really, really quick to join that because we really wanted to show the U.S. that, you know, we were there to to play ball or whatever. Um, I think that – I think after that, it was really – because the um, – the pilots i you know I got in from canada or whatever and then i think that canada was really like oh <laughs> we need to we need to show the us that like we're really their ally um and then of course like our companies also got contracts um
2: of course f- from like they yeah, just very very willing collaborator yeah um to all of these crimes over the last 20 years um
1: yeah and then, like we we played a huge role actually in um, overthrowing the like like the coups in Haiti and Honduras, and that was also um, because we had a, a great deal of mining interests as well um, there. Um, and then you know Venezuela, like like every just everywhere, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just everywhere. Yeah, oh, yeah we- like
2: every time you see like oh, the international community. You know, like painted as like the not savage nations or whatever. Like, for example, Juan Guaido is still touted as like the legitimate president of Venezuela. And and it always is Canada, Yeah. you know, included in the bunch of countries that is always on the wrong side of history whenever it comes to coups in Latin America or the overthrow of, of regimes abroad.
1: Yeah. But it's not just that we are like passively just sitting there, being like, okay, we recognize Juan Guaido. Like we spent fifty-five million dollars in efforts to destabilize Maduro. Like we're funding opposition groups. Um, and same, really? yeah, that's but,
2: fascinating.
1: Yeah, but like we we have been since um, since the since two thousand two when they were trying to get out Chavez. Um, like we brought opposition leaders to Ottawa. Um, And when Chavez suspended funding for opposition groups, Canada stepped up its funding. And like at the time, our, our prime minister, Stephen Harper, was just very openly against Chavez. Um, yeah. Chavez denounced Canada as a junior partner in imperialism, um, because we, we are, um, Harper actually celebrated when Chavez died and said it was the dawn of a better, brighter future. Um, so satanito
2: yeah. the little satan
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah
2: wow long yeah, live it's... chavez man um no i mean that's crazy that that's super interesting i had no idea to what extent canada was investing in these kind of operations
1: yeah we well, same see really incredible um, like ukraine we did that as well like we um We definitely supported the Euro Maiden protests. Um, We had been supporting like the right, the right wing forces in those protests and we provided them $16 million um, in aid. Um, And it's really interesting because um, Christopher Freeland, who is the deputy prime minister right now and who a lot of people think is being groomed to replace um, uh. Justin Trudeau as the next Mm -hmm. prime minister um her grandfather was a Ukrainian Nazi um like an actual Nazi propagandist and he came to Canada in 1950 with about like 2,000 other members of a Waffen-SS division of Ukrainian Nazis who were admitted to Canada and um so this kind of came out because Krista Freeland, um, you know, obviously, um, with everything going on in Ukraine or whatever, this came out. um, And she denied it and said that it was Russian propaganda.
2: Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, my God.
1: But then she obviously couldn't for very long. So then she said, oh, well, if it is true, I didn't know it was true, which is also demonstrably false. Um, But yeah, I mean, yeah, we definitely have ties to i guess right-wing forces in ukraine um and we're funding you know people in those protests so yeah we're we're not just like standing by uh yeah
2: yeah you're actively canada is actively complicit in the worst crimes against humanity that are going on and have been going on for you know for the entire last century
1: absolutely yeah none of this is really mainstream knowledge at all like nobody knows about the extent to which we participated in so many coups like it, patrice lumumba i mentioned before like yeah. you know canada didn't actually order that but it was a canadian um who facilitated his capture and um his execution basically yeah
2: right all the cobalt in congo probably the mining companies were yeah Salivating at getting access to that. Um, Very little people in America know about the extent of what their own government is doing to subjugate and oppress, you know, tens of millions of people around the world. So I am not surprised at all to learn that, you know, this is kind of under Mm -hmm. the radar in Canada. Uh, I, you know, I remember. Being in Toronto with you, you hosted this incredible event, one of the best events that we had on our film tour for Gaza Frights for Freedom, and it was extremely well attended. I feel like people were very conscious of the issue of Palestine. Um, I remember when we we hung out a couple times and you were telling me that, you know, the media in Canada also is very obsessed with Russia, and Mm -hmm. it kind of was on the same mass hysteria about, like, Putin kind of dictating things and puppeteering global politics and all that. And I find that really interesting because why? You know, why is that happening there? And and how do you even explain that? Because at least here, it's like they had to explain why Trump got elected without reflecting on their own uh, failures, you know, institutional failures and systemic failures of this country. and
1: The whole, like, the whole you know, thing about Canada is that we love to maintain this face of like oh we're just the good people oh we don't get involved or whatever and we can we we happily support you to go out and do all of this you know gross um imperialist fighting so that we can then as some you know like we can then come in and all of our companies can profit off of
2: yeah right. what
1: you're doing um and it benefits us that people that nobody knows this i mean i'm sure especially outside of canada a lot of people just think that well i'm i think globally like the mask is off but um you know like my friends in in the uk and things like that like they have no idea what can't like they just figure that canada is not involved um and so yeah like it's it's in our interest to support whatever like the u.s ruling class like the canadian capitalist capitalist class um needs and wants right and so um you know we were we were very behind you know like i said what went on in in ukraine and so um yeah like it's not surprising to me i guess that um the media would just you know i guess you know talk about how how horrible putin is and there was of course a lot about um like that whole thing about, you know, did he or did he not meddle in the elections was also huge news here, right? Like people were talking about that forever here. Yeah, I guess
2: another good distraction from what Canada is really doing. It's like, let's just obsess about, you know, why, because Trump was just such a cartoonish figure, probably just overshadowed so much. And I mean, it totally makes sense. Going back to what you're saying about the anti-China propaganda. Yeah, the demonization of Putin. You need to rally around these universal enemies depicted by the West in order to justify all of these insidious things that are going on under the radar.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's just a huge distraction. So, mm-hmm. um, um,
2: you know, interestingly, g- like this is the last thing I want to say just specifically about this issue, unless of course you want to say anything else, but I'm wondering what is the Canadian role as a settler colonial state, of course, similarly to the U S as the junior collaborator of U S empire, as such a staunch, a uh, partner also of Israel and all of the interesting mm-hmm. facets that you were talking about of historically of Canada participating in the partition lines and, and all of that. Mm-hmm. And so many Americans primarily go and settle in Israel mm-hmm. and live there. Um, I mean, I'm assuming Canadians do the same thing, but just because there's so many less people there that we just don't hear about it as much or.
1: It is common, you know, for people mm-hmm. here to also do birthright um, tours Um, but yeah, I mean, we're, we're very, very, uh, pro-Israel here in Canada. Like, actually there was just a ridiculous scandal. Um, this, you know, pretty rad NDP leader, Nikki Ashton, um, came under fire, uh, because she was doing a public talk with Jeremy Corbyn and a bunch of like, right-wing zionist groups got super upset and said that you know this was anti-semitic of her to, to speak with jeremy Corbyn. oh my Corbin. god dude <laughs> yeah
2: jesus christ
1: yeah so yeah i mean we're very very tied um to israel as well um and i think historically it's probably similar to the to the u.s that like you know we we were not accepting many jewish refugees from the holocaust and so um israel was kind of like okay well we can just deflect people there and then also um have this kind of like western power in the middle east um yep but um but yeah like a lot of our companies are really tied in there um like nortel uh got a 70 million contract to build new communications technology for their air force in the nineties. Um, and, uh, you know, we have big firms like, um, green park international um building part of israeli settlements in the west bank um actually the canadian highways infrastructure corporation built the trans israel highway um and that was designed deliberately not to allow traffic or communication between different west bank towns so to keep palestinians isolated and surrounded um so yeah um i think things are getting better um you know uh my partner's uh, a really awesome uh Jewish anti-zionist mm-hmm. activist and um there is a lot of really fantastic activism going on i think that i think the younger generations you know really see through a lot of it um and um yeah i actually know a lot of really great like Jewish anti-zionist activists in toronto totally. Yeah. And people
2: are like walking off Birthright Tour and really exposing what it is. And you're totally right. Like JVP, Jewish Voices for Peace, coming out and bringing attention to these issues. The younger generation being Mm -hmm. able to control the narrative more than they, you know, more than it has been before because of the advent of social media, which is really an incredible thing and is absolutely changing public consciousness Like Mm -hmm. even when we were in Montreal for the tour, I remember seeing giant posters all over Montreal advocating BDS with like Roger Waters' face on them. And I just thought, wow, you would literally never see that in any American city. Mm -hmm. Like even in the most, you know, like even like Berkeley or whatever, like considered like the most liberal city in the U.S. So I thought that was a really good sign.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We still definitely have like a long way to go. Like there are still a lot of like right wing, um, you know, elements that are very pro Israel, but I definitely think that, um, I definitely think that, yeah, the younger generations are doing a lot. Um, and there's a lot of really, really radical, um, Jewish organizations that are, that are stepping up. And of course, like Palestine, uh, Palestinian organizations as well. So, um, Mm -hmm. yeah, I think it's kind of only a matter of time, but, um,
2: yeah, it can't, it can't last. I mean, that's yeah. the thing. It's like a state like this that's like, I mean, the like the UN said, Gaza was going to be uninhabitable by 2020 because of mm-hmm. lack of potable water. It's like, well, yeah. it's 2021. So like, where are we at on yeah. that? You know, yeah. mm-hmm. it's, it's completely unsustainable. The dam has to break at some point. But as you're talking about all of Canada's assistance to US hegemony and imperialism, it is very depressing because I'm realizing just how intertwined this system is. Yeah. This is a global system. And you often talk about this on your channel um, that everyone should check out. You have incredible, incredibly insightful material that I have really enjoyed watching, actually, to prepare for this. Oh, but you, you often talk about, you know, w- what will a post-capitalist society look like? Like, mm-hmm. we talk so much about the need to dismantle capitalism. Mm-hmm. But unlike... The era of the multipolar system of the Soviet Union coming into play when the US was an emerging dominant empire. Now we have US hegemony, you know, of course, rising competitors like Russia and China, but mostly like, you know, they all are capitalist to a certain extent. I mean, you can argue, of course, about China, but like capitalism is the dominant global system and it is so intertwined with all these other junior collaborators. And of course, the military industrial complex is just has a stronghold on the world, mm-hmm. you know, and it's it, it seems impossible um, to think of revolution in that sense, in a global sense, where maybe a couple of decades ago, we would just talk about localized revolutionary processes that mm-hmm. wouldn't be, you know, wouldn't implicate like the entire world that now it, it, you honestly can't talk about it without talking about the globe. Mm-hmm. And it's like, damn, like that—that's a lot, you know. Let's just like open the conversation. How did you get involved in anti-capitalist politics? How did you want to be a, a streamer? How did you want to start talking about these issues?
1: Well, I—I I think I like even as a kid, I was really like, I couldn't stand the system, but I didn't have the language to talk about why I didn't like it. Um, but yeah, even when I was a kid, I was just really like, okay, all we have to do though is, you know, uh, make food, um, eat it, uh, have shelter. Like we don't really need (laughs) all the rest of this (laughs) fucking bullshit that we're doing. And, um, and so, yeah, I was kind of like, um, I don't know, like counterculture in my teens or whatever, but I really started to learn about, um, the environment and colonialism and capitalism and kind of just like the political economy of all of the issues that we're facing in university. Um, and then, uh, yeah, everything kind of just took off from there, but in terms of starting streaming, um, I started actually, um, so I um, I started actually, at, my channel was like a vegan channel when I first started. And I started it because um, I had actually just developed chronic illness, which I still have. And so it was difficult for me um, to like work all day on the computer. So I would kind of like write scripts or things like that. Or, um, um, I don't know. I just, I kind of had more time, I guess, because, um, some of my other stuff I just couldn't do it. Um, so, um, yeah, and then I, I started started my channel as a vegan channel. And then I realized, like, why am I spending so much time um, researching stuff that I didn't really know about? Uh, why don't I just talk about, you know, my own research um, that I was doing in grad school and in my PhD, which is all about, like, the political, political economy of, you know, the environment or different issues we were facing. Um, and so I just kind of started and I almost didn't continue because the first political um, video that I put out, like being a woman on the internet, as I'm sure you, you know, is, um, intense, especially a woman talking about politics. But yeah, the first (laughs) political video that I put out, um, was just attacked. Like I had this, um, I think it was a libertarian guy who or no, it was an ANCAP guy who um, had like so many more followers than I did. I was just starting out and he made this response video to me and I just had all of his guys like in my DMs and on my comments, just like really heinous, like violent stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> just like uh, and I was like, I don't think I want to do this anymore. Um but I guess some leftists found my stuff and then um encouraged me to continue and so I did. So yeah.
2: Well I'm glad that you did continue, but that is a really it's really tough when you encounter <laughs> yeah. stuff like that, you know? And it's yeah. really discouraging and disheartening. To Mm -hmm. see some of the vile nature of patriarchal control of, of, you know, some of these things. And like it really bleeds into when you are a female Mm -hmm. talking about politics. I don't know if I actually told you this when we hung out, but I have so many comments that I've saved because, you know, I save the real special ones that are like either Mm -hmm. really, really misogynistic or just really like crazy violent and whatever. And I want to do like an art installation where I just show you. (laughs) <laughs> this is what happens to a woman
1: yeah.
2: talking about politics. It's disgusting. And I can't imagine what you've experienced talking about even like veganism, because mm-hmm. that is like a totally triggering issue for a lot of men. You know, like masculinity is tied into like meat eating and um and hunting and like all of that shit. It's like mm-hmm. primal. And so as a woman talking about animal liberation mm-hmm. and of course, like, you know, in the lens of anti-capitalism just must be very extreme.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting. I, I would love to see that art piece by the way. Um, <laughs> but I actually just started doing the same because for the longest time I would just read them and be like, all right, whatever. Um But I, I thought recently like, you know, I should save these and just collect them and do something with them. <laughs> so yeah. I actually just started doing that too. So
2: talk about th- the animal rights activism and veganism and how does animal liberation fit into your anti-capitalist politics because this all kind of fits into the worldview of like eco-socialism and Mm -hmm. your discussion of reciprocity the -hmm. reciprocal relationships that that we need to have with nature you know and this is something that like people don't think often enough Mm -hmm. we're just obsessed with kind of critiquing the system and it's so obviously flawed and Mm -hmm. um but it's like what what are we trying to create? You know, like a utopian vision of the world, and oh. even like even like reflected in culture, like Hollywood and movies and comic books and all of this. It's like this obsession with dystopian future depictions. You know, dystopias like post Armageddon, post nuclear apocalypse, and all this stuff. And it's like it seems like sci-fi back a couple decades ago was much more positive and much more prepping for utopian visions of the world in the future. So just talk about how your worldview comes into play and why – and, like, what eco-socialism is and why you focus on these things.
1: Yeah, well, I guess um, to answer the first part about, like, animal rights and things like that, um, so, like, initially I went vegetarian when I was – like 18 or 19 or something like that. Um, and I was in college and I learned about, it was basically for environmental reasons. Like I just learned about how completely unsustainable, um, global meat production is. And, um, I, yeah, I, I didn't really look too far into what was going on to animals after that, because I kind of thought like, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm doing, I'm doing my best or I'm doing, I'm doing what I need to do. I'm a vegetarian and I'm, you know, not contributing as much to environmental harm. Um, so that's that. Um, but then about 10 years later, I, um, again, I kind of ran into chronic illness and then I I went vegan for, um, health reasons. And then after that, I started to, to learn about what happens in like the dairy industry and the egg industry and things like that. Um, and I was already anti-capitalist and, um, you know, uh fighting for human liberation on, on, you know, multiple fronts. Um, and I started to to think about, you know, how animals are um implicated in all of these systems as well. Um, and some really, really fantastic authors like Athan Silko, who wrote Afroism and Racism as Zoological Witchcraft, um, and some, you know, some others who wrote about, you know, the sexual politics of meat, um, and Uh, animal liberation and disability justice and things like that. Just um, there's a lot of people making ties between all of these things. Um, And the fact that, you know, white supremacy and colonial capitalism um, is a project that um, obviously also harms animals, but that structures, you know, the ideal person as this like white able-bodied man and, um, you know, actively, quote unquote, animalizes people who don't fit into that norm. Um, And once you can dehumanize someone or, you know, quote unquote, animalize them, then it really justifies any kind of, you know, number of horrors that you're going to enact on them. And that's only the case because... um, you know, we under this system treat animals so poorly, right? Like, like the whole idea of really white supremacy and um, and capitalism—it's the opposite of reciprocal relations with with the the environment, uh, the environment and animals, right? Um, Robin Wall Kimmerer has a really great book called um, *Braiding Sweetgrass* and talks a lot about this idea of reciprocity. Um, but she talks about kind of this like colonial mindset—it's really just coming into a place um, taking over, using up all of the resources, um, and then expanding, moving on once you've, like, depleted everything. Yeah, it just really made me think about, like, how this, how all of this is tied together. Um, because, yeah, if you think about even, like, imperialist wars and things like that, um, they are always preceded by these propaganda campaigns that try to paint people living there as animals, right?
2: Right, um, exactly.
1: Like you exactly. Yeah, like it's if you can just dehumanize people to that extent, then um, it justifies treating them in this kind of subhuman way. And then so what Co talk about, Silko sorry, talk about, um, is that that's because we treat and like, if we didn't treat animals so terribly <laughs> in our society, then being treated like an animal um, wouldn't be so bad. And that like animals actually have a stake in um, the dismantling of all these systems as well. Um, and then just on the capitalist side, it's just really gross when you start to think about um, like what happens when you commodify animal bodies and try to like maximize their quote unquote production. Like you're treating sentient beings as commodities and so you're breeding them in these really perverse ways to maximize certain traits and things like that and then i think COVID actually really demonstrated how um you know ineffective and how ridiculous this whole system is because we had on the one hand um you know stores uh like empty of meat products um and on the other hand, we had like millions of animals being slaughtered, who were not going to be eaten by anyone, and just like their bodies were just, you know, thrown out onto these compost heaps, Um because oh God. So yeah, disturbing, absolutely, yeah, just to
2: keep the production going, like just to to keep yeah, because- the gears turning
1: yeah to keep because like like the the new generations are brought up so quickly after the old ones and you can only let an animal get so big before it becomes like being oh, a slaughterhouse worker is already one of the most horrific jobs um that you could possibly have um but it's very very dangerous because yeah you're dealing with these huge animals and if they're too big then it's too big for the workers to like hoist them up um and slaughter them or like cut through them and things like that um so that's another aspect of it is that like all the people who are doing the work uh in slaughterhouses are very marginalized people like often undocumented migrant workers who can't complain about what's going on. Um, like workers develop PTSD. Obviously there's a huge, um, risk of like health issues and infection and things like that. Um, and then obviously during COVID, you know, um, the slaughterhouses were major hotspots of COVID transmission as well. So it's just like all around, (laughs) this is horrible. It doesn't make any sense. It combines the exploitation of humans and animals. Um, You know, speaking of pandemics, it's also, you know, these breeding grounds of like novel diseases and zoonotic diseases and things like that. Just all around the system like it's just kind of demonstrates just like the worst aspects of like capitalism and white supremacy and speciesism all tied together um and yeah like it just really has no place i believe in um a post capitalist future which is based on reciprocal relationships with the environment um which is something that like we we can't get around that like sometimes i even think about Or I'll hear, you know, leftist ideas for the future, and it'll be, like, primarily focused around, like, democratizing workplaces, which is absolutely important. But then it's like, okay, but we can't just democratize everything that we're doing and, like, keep the wheels turning on this system, which is, you know... um, completely not in a reciprocal relationship with the environment. Like we're at a complete crisis point right now when it comes to climate change. Um, And so we really do have to think about like closing that circle. Like we can't just run like a straight line forever within a system of finite resources, you know, like we do have to think about um, living differently um, in ways that, uh acknowledge the fact that we do leave, live in ecosystems even if we're in a city and we don't feel like we're living in an ecosystem we are part of an ecosystem we're just not conscious of our actions within it um and You're I, so right
2: like I hear a lot of people talk about seizing means of production of Amazon because it's such a seamless thing it's very efficient but mm-hmm. at the same time it's like the most wasteful enterprise the packaging the plastic, mm-hmm. the tape, like all of this shit is just so, so unnecessary mm-hmm. and so extremely diametrically opposed to like what we should be doing to harness our capabilities in the ecosystems that we live, right? And mm-hmm. yeah, it's like I never hear people talk about that, like realistically talking about what what are we actually envisioning here?
1: Yeah, exactly. And I mean, like, taking over Amazon, like, obviously, that would be fantastic in terms of, like, having the infrastructure to be able to ship things where we need them to be. But if we don't deal with the underlying consumerism, like, we can't still be, you know, buying like all of this crap, especially, um, you know, using, like, rare earth minerals or just, you know – yeah, like if we don't if we don't address this overall system of like individual consumption, production and consumption, um, then we're not going to solve climate change, right?
2: It's interesting. And I never watched Planet of the Humans and I definitely need to, but there was so much controversy around it because they were like, you're proposing like eco-fascism. You know, you're talking about how we need to like depopulation and all of this stuff. It's like, no, I think. I mean, I don't know. I haven't seen the movie, so I actually can't comment on that. But I think that the overarching argument is about consumption. Even if you were to completely adopt like alternative energy modes, you still have to deal with the conditioning mm. on a massive scale, on a global scale of consumption. That is the primary thing that is the problem. It's people thinking that they need to buy everything and everything being commodified um and until we really focus psychologically on how we can deconstruct that like programming i don't know how we're going to ever get out of the global crisis that we're facing
1: mhm yeah i haven't seen that movie either um uh, so i don't know what what they're saying but um but yeah no you're you're absolutely right like um there's just really no way around that and so yeah, if we aren't, I don't know. Yeah, if we aren't like relocalizing, um, re envisioning like what a good life means and like, you know, what kind of materials we're using that are, um, you know, not so toxic or like, why are we using plastic? You know, like, why are we? Oh my we God,
2: it should have been banned like 50 yeah. years ago. Like the fact that all the burden is on the consumer. And I think that's really the problem when you look at it's really, really hard to try to re envision how we can live sustainably in a reciprocal relationship with nature and our ecosystem when when we live under capitalism, of course, because mm-hmm. the burden is all on the, on the individual. And it's almost like individualized in terms of the solution, too, because we don't have a structural systemic analysis about where we're going collectively mm-hmm. in a post-capitalist world. And so it's almost like we're all kind of like left to be like, okay, well, what? how are we supposed to fit into society if you are conscious of these things. And it's very overwhelming because then you look at like six corporations are polluting the planet. It's Mm -hmm. not us doing our part. And and of course it's incredible that you're an animal rights activist and a vegan and you are very conscious of these things and you are doing your direct service. Um, But it's like, we all know that individualizing the solution is not a solution at all. And it, it really boils down to like overthrowing the system and replacing it but it just it's so overwhelming Mexi, because mm-hmm. you know like for example the u.s military you know like all yeah. of these environmental movements are so tied in intrinsically with u.s militarism like mm-hmm. greenpeace the sierra club they probably get like government grants you know and of course they're not going to go against what is the elephant in the room the u.s military as the largest polluter in the world and the largest contributor to climate change and so mm-hmm. un- until we tackle that Like, what are we even talking about here, guys? Mm -hmm. Um, And it just seems like, as you mentioned in one of your videos, we have a decade. We have a decade and and then it's really going to be too late. It already is too late to a certain extent, like for Mm -hmm. potentially like a billion people around the world who are going to be like primarily affected by climate change. But like it is getting to the point of no return look at the fires in Australia. You're talking about, you know, animals and how, you know, war is predicated on the dehumanization of people. But it's like, what about animals? Like Mm -hmm. 3 billion animals were killed or displaced by the fires in Australia. Like that Mm -hmm. is like absolutely, it's just like sit and just wrap your mind around that number, you Mm -hmm. know?
1: Mm -hmm.
2: I don't even know where I'm going with this, but it's like, (laughs) I guess it just irritates me so much that, we're told whether it's COVID or recycling or the environment, it's like, we are told you just do your part. Mm -hmm. And, and meanwhile, corporations, Coca-Cola, like plastic bottles. Like I go to the store and get a coffee. It's like, why the fuck are we using plastic? Like why, Mm -hmm. when I go to, uh, to get something for my computer, is it wrapped in this hard plastic casing that should have been outlawed. The second we knew that it doesn't biodegrade, like what the hell is going on here? It's like it's just it's just infuriating because we can't control what what these corporations are doing, you know. Mm
1: -hmm. I know. Yeah, it is really infuriating. It is such a huge problem that I feel like people um, it's easy to be just so completely overwhelmed by it that you become like just. Like, there's a lot of like inertia um, in like the doomerism of it. Um, but yeah, I'm making a video right now actually called Living the Revolution. Um, and I think that, you know, I don't know, like, it is such a, like you said, just an overwhelming um, proposition, this idea of trying to have this global revolution. I was actually really inspired by, um, you had Peter Joseph on your show. Um, Oh, he's
2: dude. He's fucking incredible, man.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he was talking about, um, his ideas around, you know, like relocalizing, um, you know, building up community resilience, building up like a new grid of, um, resilient, self-governing communities that, um, that rely on money as little as possible. Like I actually think that, yeah, it kind of is too late. Um, or I, I just feel like we obviously still, we need to fight imperialism. We need to fight the state and make sure to at every step of the way, oppose like the violent shit that they're going to rain down upon all of us. And especially marginalized people, um, BIPOC people. Um, but I think that really the solution is in kind of like what he was saying. Like we need to actually like, I, do what we can, and I know it's like ridiculously hard to do what we can um, to exist um, or to build communities that are. Um, resilient and that can meet people's needs as much as possible outside of the state and capital. But I think that like, we need to start doing that and make the state Mm. and capital as irrelevant as possible to the functioning of our communities and, you know, build our communities in a way that like we are um, as much as possible living in reciprocity wherever we are um, and kind of like build out this new grid and, and, you know, just kind of be there. Cause I think at this point it's more likely that, um, you know, climate change is going to continue, automation is going to put people out of jobs, like, you know, the capitalist economy is going to start to bottom out at the same time that we start facing a lot of um, climate, climate catastrophe. And I feel like we need to start right now and like build out our community resilience to be able to have like a communal grid to kind of fall back on when all of these uh, you know, capitalist supply chains start to fail um, or, you know, whatever, because yeah, yeah no, it's a, it's a really this. good
2: point. It's a really good point. And we see that happening today. Like the failures of these institutions already playing out, like whenever there's like a hurricane or, you know, or like locally, like whenever there's a fucking flood or something in the yeah. US, look at what just happened in Texas. It's like that had to go mm-hmm. to direct peer to peer community organizing to actually provide relief. Because of just the massive failure and we're not even like there yet. Like, and I totally agree with you. Once we're like full fledged into climate change, um, man, like that, that's going to be a really crazy scene. But right now we're already, we're already getting the taste of what that's going to be like whenever these crises erupt. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I mean, I guess that's kind of where where i'm at like we i feel like we still need to do this kind of like reactive um mobilization to counter what the state is doing but i think other than that like yeah we need to as much as possible be thinking really about what we can do like realistically um, in building out our own communities and that's why I liked um, what Peter Joseph was saying Mm. on your podcast because he was talking about how um, this isn't something that you necessarily need to like go move rural and like have a homestead or whatever in order to build this kind of community like there's a lot of stuff that we can do in the inner city like using the infrastructure of capitalism using new technology um, to start doing some of these things and, and lessen our reliance on like money and the overall like state and capitalist grid. But yeah, right. it's, um, yeah, I mean, it's going to be a lot of work.
2: <laughs> yeah. Right. And it's like going way well beyond like mutual aid. I mean, we're talking about yeah. like, literally like building alternative infrastructures that, yeah. um, and yeah. utilizing like the, like you're saying, like the existing paradigm to do so. Um, my brother's back, hey, baby. I'm, I'm back. Hi, hi, Rob. Um,
0: no, I was listening, I was actually listening in for the last ten minutes and I wasn't I didn't uh have anything to say. You guys were having a good conversation. But one of the things that I thought about while you guys were talking is this idea that I think a lot of leftists and just political thinkers in general, or people who want to get engaged, let's just say. Um, I think that they lack in a general sense vision or 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 the ability to generate ideas and creative approaches to what the problems are. And I think what ha- with a lot of the problem with the left that I see now is that a lot of people just rely on sort of a powerful activist or a figurehead to channel their sort of energy into and to get behind a quote unquote, you know, protest group or, or some kind of activist group. Now, that's good, too. There's definitely benefits to that. But I think that I, I do. I, I like what discussion you guys are having, because it's getting down to like the bare essentials of actually thinking as an individual how can you make change rather than just being like i'm going to recycle i'm going to you know not you know do these x y and z um i think that that's one that's one issue moving forward i think people need to really think about is like sort of more of a visionary and creative approach to what the problems we're seeing now are i don't know how you guys yeah. feel about that i feel like mm-hmm. peter joseph is is very on that uh, in particular oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah 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 uh, but in general, I mean, it does seem like one of the, you know, psych- psychological states that we get, often get in as sort of leftist is this idea that things do feel very fucked up and like that things are very wrong. It's hard not to see this society in general in through that prism, I think. Um, and I think a lot of people just from a mental psychological perspective that can actually cause like depression and You know, Mm -hmm. not like the ability to not enjoy life as much, just in a general sense, it can get you down. Um, But like on the the flip side of that, there is, you know, there are some positive things happening. There does seem to be a lot of energy being directed back into like legitimately good forms of populism. And, you know, you actually have a series about this (laughs) <laughs> uh, about actual positive developments and movements and things happening on the left. So give us some examples of some of these stories that you've been pulling out and how maybe they can be used to like inspire other people for ideas or ways to get engaged that don't feel merely like uh you know I'm going to join DSA and just like see where that goes.
1: Mhm. Yeah, I yeah, I really love what you're saying about how the left is not very good at, um, like radical creative ideation. Mm -hmm. Um, we tend to just really fall back on what has already been possible. Um, and I think for a lot of people, yeah, like it all just feels so big that we kind of feel like like a lot of people spend most of their time like on Twitter or things like that, trying to convince other people that there is a really big problem. And that is important work, obviously, like we need education, agitation, like that's what I'm doing on Mm
0: -hmm. on YouTube.
1: But I think then um, it kind of becomes like, oh, well, that's what I'm doing about it. Or outside of that, you just kind of feel like, there's nothing you can do about it. And so for me, I think recently it's been really important to kind of reframe. Um, cause if your goal is like global revolution, then you're not going to really know even where to start with that. You know, yeah. like that's way too big of a place to start. Um, but if you're thinking of you yourself in your life, um, you need to set like really tangible and achievable goals. So like, what can I do right now, even if it's really small? Um, Like you really have to think mostly about the achievable and try to get really creative with like what the achievable is. Um, So yeah, I do have, I started a series called Positive Leftist News, um, which is its own channel now. Um, And I really love doing that because um, I think it's really important to, Show people, I mean, A, people who are doing kind of like radical creative ideation um, and B, just showing that, you know, even in months where it seems like everything is horrible, there actually is a lot of work being done around the world and a lot of people pushing forward, you know, really great, um, really great things that we don't often hear about. Um so I guess in terms of some of the stories I mean personally I find the story of you know Bolivia basically reversing the coup to be so inspiring <laughs> um I mean has that ever happened before yeah, it's pretty uh, badass you know like uh, a country actually mobilizing to such an extent and reversing a coup like their general strikes are just amazing um as well as like the, you know, the India farmer strikes, the Haiti general strike, like like there's just a lot of people around the world who like know how to throw a good general strike and yeah, we could right. probably learn from that. Right. Um, but then on the smaller scale, like there's a lot of really great stories around um like police being defunded and then money being used elsewhere. And I think this is huge because police are obviously, you know, the armed upholders of capitalism, like the armed protectors of private property. And so if we can defund and, you know, divest from their authority as much as possible, that is obviously just going to help our cause tremendously. um, And also help like BIPOC people who are, um, you know, disproportionately targeted by the police. Um, But something actually, actually in Toronto that's been really inspiring for me is that, um, these two activists just had this idea, really, um, I had them on my podcast, The Vegan Vanguard, but yeah, it was just two people and they were, um, they're mental health workers, um, and there were just like a ton of stories coming out where um you know people would call in uh about people behaving weirdly or like needing a a quote-unquote wellness check to be done um and then the police showing up and then you know killing them or having them die as a result of the police being there escalating the situation um and so yeah they just they have this idea that we should have um and it wasn't just like their idea, like this is actually happening in a lot of cities in the US as well and globally. Um, But people are organizing alternative civilian led teams of like like mental health um, responders, um, who are of the community and for the community, who uh, are going to be called to respond when Anyone needs some kind of like a, a mental health check or a wellness check or something like that. So um, making it so that all of those calls, like they've, they've kind of built this up and now they're working with the city to make sure that like if anyone calls 911 and it's something like this, like a mental health crisis then all of those calls get diverted to this alternative um, team of like civilians that are in the community. Um, but yeah, people like this model is kind of catching on and they they're talking to other organizers like around the world and around um, the US and things like that. But yeah, that was just like a really great idea that they were able to just get off the ground. And to me, that's huge, you know, so it's like, start setting yourself more achievable goals i guess that are going to you know do a lot of important work to start chipping away at all of this stuff um
2: right like you can so, have revolution in mind while acting locally and doing yeah, the things yeah. you know that you have control over like,
1: and you the need to because about. otherwise none of this local work is ever going to get done you know what i mean right. like because we're all just kind of waiting for this faraway day when like the revolution is going to happen because I think we're just imagining that like things are going to get so bad that the revolution is going to happen eventually. And then everything's going to be fine. But like if a revolution happens and we don't have, um, you know, alternative communal liberatory, institutions set up or like you know if we don't have a network of like resilient communities set up who can then step up and step in then it's going to be just fucking chaos and it's going to be horrible you know what i mean like and you know there's a potential that the fascists could just take over if that's the case um well yeah no and
2: it's and it's interesting that people think (laughs) sorry to jump in but i wanted to comment really quickly on what you just said which is like people and i You used to think this, too. It's like things will get so bad that, of course, people will eventually rise up and demand this or that. And it's like that's not how history works. Like Mm -hmm. things can get way worse. And then if there's an absence of organizing and the infrastructure and the structures that you're talking about, the alternative structures, then you will get led into like demagoguery and fascism. And like that's actually how fascism takes root. So it's like, you need to actually be organizing locally. Like that is an imperative thing to be doing.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And yeah, because I think a lot of people don't do that, especially there's this thing on this online, on the online left, especially where it's like everyone just, you know, denigrates each other for not being like radical or revolutionary enough. And it's like, like people will just like mock each other for like, oh, you're part of this or like, oh, you're doing food, not bombs or something like, oh, that's so not radical and that's just like liberal shit or what, you know, the people just like mock each other because it's like, Oh, well, what you're doing is not going to lead directly to the capital R revolution. Um, But it's like, no, actually, if that's an achievable thing for you to do locally in your community, then do that, you know, like start with what you can do. And then um, through that, you'll probably get other ideas, like you'll meet people um, and get other ideas about other things that you can do together. Um, So, yeah.
2: (laughs) All of my best friends here are people I've met in the movement. It's an extremely liberating, beautiful thing to be a part Mm -hmm. of local movement's working to do these things, Maxi. And, you know, and and no matter where you're living, there's Mm -hmm. always people around you, you know, that are there to help build, build this up that we're talking about. And it, and it is an absolutely incredible thing to get Mm -hmm. involved with communities and build friendships and camaraderie over these issues, these shared goals, Mm -hmm. you know, that that's what life is.
0: Yeah. Just keep up the amazing work, Maxi. You're one of the most, um, I think one of the most important people putting out content out there. I mean, you have a unique way of doing it. Um, it's not, you know, following along with the, sort of the clickbait trends. You're doing your own thing. I think more people need to be doing that. And so you're, I think you're an inspiration to what, you know, more people on in this movement should be doing. So thank you for wow. your contribution.
1: Thank you so much. That honestly means so much. I've been listening to you guys for so long. (laughs) I've listened to like your whole back catalog. Um, That's awesome. I just, yeah. That makes me cringe a little bit though
0: too, because we've been on for 10 (laughs) 10 years. So there's some old stuff where I'm like, I don't even remember what I used to say on the podcast.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, I've, yeah, I've just been really inspired by you guys and like, you're doing incredibly important work. You're definitely one of like the few podcasts that I come to you and I feel like I really learn something and like learn important things about what's going on, you know, behind the scenes that that nobody talks about or reports on. So yeah, we appreciate thank you so much you. for having, yes, having We me appreciate you so
2: much. Mexi, you're amazing. I I feel so honored to have you on here. Everyone, please go and subscribe to Mexi on YouTube and also you have uh, a series now on means TV. So if people are subscribers of means TV, I encourage you to become a subscriber of means TV so you can check out Mexi's work on there. Any other way that people can support you?
1: Um, uh, I have a Patreon at patreon.com slash Mexi. Um, and yeah, my positive leftist news um, just Google positive leftist news and that's on YouTube as well. Um, And then
0: I have a podcast also at veganbangerpodcast.com. Yeah, thanks, Maxie.
1: Thank you so much.
0: If you're not already a subscriber to Media Roots Radio on Patreon, by going to patreon.com slash media roots radio, for as little as $5 a month, you get access to our one premium bonus episode per month. And this month, we're doing a AMA and taking audience questions and topics for the entire episode and thank you everybody for your support take care